Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. And we're back with some more bonus content. Woo, bonuses. <laughs> we do like bonuses. Uh, this is episode three of Midnight Mass, the one where all the stuff happens. Oh my gosh. I have been <laughs> waiting for this moment literally since the moment we started watching episode one. <laughs> since I, the very first one. <laughs> yeah, the, it everything really uh, ratcheted up very quickly. <laughs> yes, yes. I, so... Once again, this is Juliet's first watch through. Yes. This is my second one. So my partner had already watched way ahead before I actually watched all of this show. And he's like, oh, my God. He had binged like four or five episodes in one night. So he's like, oh, my God, you have to watch this movie or this television show. And I'm like, okay. And I watched the first two episodes. I think I watched those in one day. And then I had to wait a little while to watch the, the rest of it. And I'm like, man, it's kind of slow moving. I mean, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of stuff happening. And if you're into a narrative, you know, in, if you're into a narrative and a, uh, or you like drama, definitely yeah, yeah. there's stuff to chew on there. If you have any sort of Catholic influences in your life, sure, you could definitely gnaw on that for a little while. The third episode, what a hook. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I see. I see. Yes. Now you're like, okay, now I understand why I must watch this TV show. Yeah. So. so this one is called Proverbs, again, keeping in the names for books of the Bible. Proverbs are kind of little nuggets of wisdom, sayings, as you will, from the Bible. So that's where that comes from. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, I'm semi-familiar with the Bible. Like, I know the broad strokes, but I did not have to... Uh, study it religiously as you did at yep. one point in time. So I was actually going to ask you about that. Like, so not only Proverbs as in what it means literally or what we take away from that in the Bible, like, you know, the nuggets of knowledge. I don't know if it's like separate stories that are all kind of divided up or like parables or what happens. It's more akin to Psalms where it's not really stories and it's more like sayings okay. it's more like a collection of like wise sayings like okay. in the same way that psalms is poetry mm -hmm. proverbs is i mean what we think of as a proverb now it's it's like a wise saying or or a nugget of wisdom something that imparts ideas about morality and like what values should be. It is worth noting too that Proverbs, like many of the books of the Old Testament, are part of the Torah as well, are part of Jewish tradition. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and so Proverbs is a lot about, it's basically wisdom that all stems from the fear of God, which I think factors into this episode in a huge, huge way. Wow, that actually adds a whole extra layer to it because I had some things that I wanted to discuss about the title of this episode being Proverbs and what it means both literally from the Bible and also in a more figurative sense, mm -hmm. but adding to it that fear of God thing that we get to towards the end of the episode where 
we have both the unseen fear of God in terms of being present in a miracle or being present near a miraculous happening. And then also the very real, tangible, seen fear of uh, Monsignor Pruitt. Yeah. Which we'll get to a little bit later. I don't really want to like dive right into that because there's so much to chew on that happens beforehand before we get to that like really hook part at the end of the third episode. But one thing I wanted to ask because just for my own knowledge and background. Sure. So I know that the Wailing Wall is a very important place for Jewish people to go as part of tradition. Can you speak to why it's also important for Catholics to go there? Is it just because it's a holy site? The Wailing Wall or the Western Wall, as we call it, is, you know, a holy place of pilgrimage. The whole Temple on the Mount is really important to Jewish folks, Christian folks, and Muslim folks, because Mm -hmm. those faith traditions are all tied together and they all have a shared tradition of literature, a shared history, as they actually talk about a little bit in this episode. You know, different faith traditions sort of venerate it in different ways. It has a special significance for those of the Jewish faith, but it also, yeah, it's considered a holy site for Christians as well. Okay. Do you know what the practice of like putting the paper in the wall, What what is that? Like, what are you doing when you do that? I believe that you're putting in like a prayer or a wish or a request to God. It's very similar at many, many Christian holy sites. Like when you go to uh, places like different shrines, to different saints, especially like holy sites to Mary, Mm -hmm. there is a tradition of putting like, you know, um, a prayer and a request to like whatever saints site you're visiting to or okay. a Mary site or something like that. Okay. That makes sense. I just didn't know. I was like, I know that it is a site of importance, but I have no idea what the background is. So yeah, like I knew that Monsignor Pruitt was going to the Holy Land. Like they sent him on this pilgrimage for him to visit the Holy Land before he lost too much more of his mind And Father Paul kind of talks to this. I love that the entire episode is couched kind of in a confession. I love that. Yeah. And like, you are both brought exactly to where we are in the present, but also finding out what happened to Monsignor Pruitt. I love that. But Father Paul says, you know, Monsignor Pruitt was actually way further gone than anybody had realized. Mm -hmm. And sending him to a place where he didn't know where he was and didn't really know anybody made things so much worse. And so I just thought it was interesting that the good people of Crockett Island are thinking, okay, we're going to send this guy, we're going to have him do this Holy Land pilgrimage to find God, to strengthen his connection to God before he is unable to travel anymore or really realize what he's doing. But instead of doing that, And I don't necessarily think it, like, harmed his faith necessarily, because I don't know that he could, like, draw those lines together anymore. But it made things so much worse. Oh, yeah. So, super interesting. I think that's, it's not to go off on a whole tangent here, but it is sort of the question of, like, 
you know, well-intentioned helpers. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been this whole thing. This is funny. This is like the third time this has come up as of late. There's been this whole thing on Twitter that came out of the Jorts the Cat account mm-hmm. that I love so much <laughs> that I talk about way too much. But in the disability community on Twitter, the term buttering the cat has become <laughs> a, a, a sort of shorthand for like people making accommodations for making accommodations for disabled people that disabled people like never asked for. Right. And doing it out of like sort of misplaced good intent. Mm -hmm. And although like this is not exactly that, I do draw that parallel of like this sort of like noble, seemingly right minded, but not at all thought through Mm -hmm. attempt on the part of this community that had they and we don't see a lot about their intentions here because this is all told in flashback, but like you feel like had anybody in the community like stopped to think a little bit or with clear eyes and clear head said, you know, this would be really nice, but really this person is in no shape to go to the other side of the world and go on. You know, um, from my understanding, pilgrimages to the Holy Land are pretty rough Mm -hmm. because the sites that have been preserved are are preserved as is. You know, it's very uh, rocky terrain. It's very difficult terrain, which can make the trip even more meaningful for those who go. But it does not sound like something that, you know, somebody in Father Pruitt's shape should have you know like it probably should have been off the table the whole time yeah like maybe that was something he had mentioned before as like being a goal but then i mean as these things happen unfortunately like dementia can last for a long time but alzheimer's has a tendency to once it appears go very very quickly so perhaps it was something where like even six or eight months before he was like you know what that's the thing that i've always wanted to do and then in the time that the town the island had been fundraising he just became incapable of going the whole time i'm thinking why didn't you send somebody with this guy yeah and it seems like there are people there helping him like know that okay, this is Monsignor Pruitt, like, they know him, he's supposed to be part of their group, but nobody was, like, attending to him the entire time, and if you have any, like, people in your life or in your family that have those type of memory issues, you know that you can't even leave them for a moment. Right, right, yeah. And Dr. Sarah experiences that exact same thing in this episode, where, like, her mom, she turns her back for a minute, like, getting blankets, and then her mom is all the way up the stairs, and it's very treacherous for her. Yeah. So, in the same way, somebody probably should have been at Monsignor Pruitt's arm, like, all the time. Yeah, if they were going to go through with this, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And also, was it meaningful to him? It didn't seem like it. It seemed like he was terrified. Yeah. Yeah, it seemed more like a a scary experience because he was the thing the thing about that is too, you know, if you've had anybody in your life with memory issues or dementia, this sort of common wisdom is the familiar is best. Yeah. Keeping things as regular and as familiar can really help someone who's experiencing that. And so to plunk someone down in a different country a different environment with different people like that's not helping them at all Mm -mm. 
And like when Dr. Sarah was having that conversation with her mom, when her mom says like, I was in some other place, it was black. And then it's like, I woke up. To me, that is what I imagined Monsignor Pruitt was feeling when he realized that he is somewhere he doesn't know, surrounded by people he doesn't know, surrounded by languages. I mean, we can only assume, but likely he doesn't know their language, at least not enough to like be able to converse. And again, a pilgrimage to the Holy Land is going to be... um, you're going to be with people from all around the world, you know, people from that part of the world speaking Arabic, speaking Hebrew, speaking Persian in all different dialects, let alone all of the pilgrims coming from all over the world, from all different faith traditions, speaking different languages and different dialects. I mean, that would be disorienting, I think, to any person, Mm -hmm. let alone to someone who has already experiencing dementia. Yeah. And I would imagine that that is an extremely busy place. Oh, yeah. Because as I understand it, it's that is like the I mean, for almost every single large religion in the world, that is the place to have your pilgrimage. Yeah. So super busy, lots of different people. Also, considering that Monsignor Pruitt is with other people in the Catholic order, they're all wearing black. Like, well, and as you saw at the Western Wall, um, so were many of the Jewish men. I thought right. there were several shots that were very meaningful where you had to really look hard to tell is this person Christian clergy or is this person wearing, you know, sort of traditional Jewish garb? Yeah. Again, to further the confusion. Right. To take it back a little bit, though, so Proverbs as an episode name, we're talking about nuggets of knowledge, and Father Paul really hammers that in his liturgy? What is that called? When the sermon, I guess? Oh, the sermon? Uh Uh, Homily. Homily. Okay, so he's like really hammering on what is a proverb? What knowledge do we have? What knowledge does God give us that is not hyperbole or, you know, metaphor? It is literal. It is visceral. They can see the effects of it because of Lisa, which we end on that in the second episode. So picking back up with like the entire island, or at least the people who were in the church at that time being present for a miracle Amazing. But I wanted to talk about the specific and deliberate amount of wisdom and knowledge that each of the characters is receiving Mm -hmm. and also is giving. Oh, yeah. So, like, one of the more powerful scenes, and there are several, in this episode is Lisa coming to Joe. That was, like, the best scene in the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. So Lisa Scarborough, she is, uh, she has been paralyzed from the waist down by a wayward bullet from Joe. Um, we know that Joe did not mean to shoot her, but nonetheless, she was paralyzed from the waist down for several years. I don't think we know exactly how many, but Lisa is played by Anara Simone, and we have Joe, who is played by Robert Longstreet. I don't know anything else that Lisa's been in, but I know Robert Longstreet has been in several things. He was in Halloween Kills. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah. Huh. 
Uh, not looking quite as shabby, but yeah. um, he was also in Doctor Sleep. Oh, he. I think he was one of the like uh, people in the um, in Rose the Hats group. Yes, okay. exactly. Okay, I was like, I can't remember what they're called, but yeah, Rose the Hats group. <laughs> but Lisa going to Joe, Lisa who has recently regained the use of her legs, going to Joe, and it's insane because Joe is like pissed off that people have been. Um, that somebody is knocking on his door. Obviously, used to being left alone, he is afraid that anybody who's going to disturb him is going to heckle him or give him a hard time or whatever. Though he is a pain in everybody's ass. Like, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> there. Like, but prior to this episode, like, there's no, you know, there's no mistaking that. But when he opens the door, you think that something really scary is going to happen because he staggers back from the door, like just floored. And Lisa steps in. And so you're definitely not expecting little Lisa to walk in. You're like, there's a monster. Something oh, bad's yeah, happening. Yeah. But Lisa, going back to this whole idea of like nuggets of knowledge, Lisa is able to tell Joe the only thing that is standing between Joe and a good life or a better life, not even a good life, just better than living in a trailer, is himself. Yeah. Which, that's a huge bomb to drop on somebody. It really is, yeah. Especially because she's a teenager. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I mean, I guess having a miracle happen to you kind of gives you, like, that snap clarity of, like, I don't have any time to waste. I've just been given another chance. Now I need to go. And and she even says, like, it wasn't her disability that was holding her back. It was her anger mm-hmm. and hate towards him and the fact that she wouldn't forgive him. And what a powerful moment when she forgives him and Joe just weeps. Yeah, the whole, that actor is just, I mean, they were both amazing in that scene. Her monologue was just stunning. And then his reaction to play such a, you know, he barely said anything, but you could just see it all in his face and in his physicality. It was amazing. I've never seen anybody summon tears that quickly. I don't know what place he had to go to to get there, but holy crap, like... It definitely got me verklempt myself. Yeah, definitely. Like, I was a little uh, little choked up. I mean, watching it again, just to see Lisa, who prior to this episode and prior to the miracle, I really feel like she was kept small by her yeah, parents and by, and by the community because of being in a wheelchair. Because they were like, oh, no, she she can't do that. She, she, you know, she's in a wheelchair. She can't go hang out with the guys. Um, she has to go to mass every single day, you know? And so she's kept small and now she has this miracle happen to her and she no longer is in her chair. She is able to sneak out and kiss boys and drop wisdom on Joe, like a (laughs) A bomb, like, you know, make Joe cry a lot. And every single person who's ever watched the show. (laughs) Yeah. So what an insane scene like just yeah and I like that she didn't just um she didn't just walk in and say like oh hey a miracle happened and I forgive you because this miracle happened like the fact that she went there and and I kind of wondered as we went like 
is she there to forgive him or is she there simply because she has found the power to voice her feelings because she spent a lot of time talking about her anger mm-hmm. and her hurt and her observation of Joe and her observation of herself and her community and the way, you know, both she and Joe are kind of viewed and treated by their community, which was an interesting parallel, by the way. And then she finally gets around to forgiving him in a very moving moment. But um, yeah, just really, really powerful. And I love that they didn't just jump to, hey, I can walk and I'm here to forgive you. Mm -hmm. Like it gives the character so much more depth to really say like, and I love that she said, I'm not done being angry with you, Mm -hmm. but I am going to forgive you. What a self-aware, like, I could only dream of being (laughs) (laughs) self-aware to say, you know, to say like, I might be capable of forgiving you, but I'm not capable of not being angry at what happened to me and the years that I spent in my wheelchair and not able to experience. Because there's only a handful of kids on the island that are her age. Right, right. But she has missed out on forming those friendships. Um, I'm sure that there's lots of things that she can't do, you know. On such a small island, a person who uses a wheelchair is not going to have the same amount of, I mean, there's no sidewalks. It's like mud. Yeah, yeah. And you can see that certain spaces have been made accessible for her, but it's not, and it's not even, it's not even from a lack of care. It factors into, you know, this goes to a whole like larger thing where like, yeah, poverty impacts accessibility. A community that is barely holding it together, even if they would want to, that community does not have the resources to make their community fully accessible for what at this point we see as one member of the community. And I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying like, that's like a fact of capitalism Mm -hmm. is that, you know, poverty then impacts so many other things. And we kind of hear that reflected in her parents as well. Mm -hmm. When they say, when Bev is trying, or is it Bev? No, the doctor is trying to get them to go to take Lisa to the mainland to figure out, you know, why she was healed in the hopes of helping other people. And her parents, you know, they kind of skirt around the issue for a minute. And then they finally just say, like, look, our food is paid for by SNAP benefits. We are barely scraping by. We used to own our house. We rent our house now. Somebody else owns our house. And we would do it all again if we had to, you know, because we love our daughter. But this is our reality. So, like, we don't have the means to, even if this knowledge would help somebody else like we can't you know we can't do it and that kind of brings us back to like nuggets of knowledge yeah what are they i mean obviously in the context of being on the island it is a miracle we don't know otherwise like the story has the script has told us it's a miracle right (laughs) probably not some sort of scientific breakthrough or something like that but they're living with the knowledge that they have chosen. They are choosing to believe that it is, it's a miracle. So they observed her walking, you know, at the church, like rising from her chair and being able to walk to get the thing. What's it called? The host. Yeah, the host. (laughs) 
The tiny cracker, very thin. The wafer. It's a wafer. A wafer. Uh, what is the difference between a cracker and a wafer? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> really? What's the difference? No. Um, is it salty? What's it taste like? It kind of has no taste. Though I will say you can... Okay. Catholic divergence here. Here we go. Okay, so the host is a manufactured like wafer. There are companies like catholic companies that make these things and they're very standard and they're very small and thin however you could actually use any kind of bread for communion and that was like a big thing so if you go to catholic school you typically make your first communion in like second grade that's Mm -hmm. when i did mine and one of the things like you do all these like extra classes and stuff in addition to your normal like religion classes in school. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I always remember from those classes is that they did this thing where they brought all these different types of bread into the church to kind of illustrate to us that it doesn't matter, like, per the sort of, like, concept of what communion is, it doesn't really matter what kind of bread it is. Okay. It's what the bread becomes. I see. Did you get a second metal name? That's confirmation. Okay. And yes. So you got confirmed? Yeah, that's eighth grade. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I I remember my friend in elementary school, she went to like special classes at the Catholic church in my town Mm -hmm. that I grew up in, and she got a second middle name. Yeah. And I was like, dang. Yeah, it's your confirmation name. Some people use it as a a second middle name. Some people just, yeah, it's typically a saint's name. Okay. Hers was Murray. Mine was Cecilia. Oh, well, Cecilia's cooler. <laughs> Everybody's middle name is Marie. Anyways, <laughs> Catholic digression. Yeah. Okay, so back to knowledge. There's a lot of knowledge being given and received, kind of like the host. Yeah. <laughs> um, not just by people, not just by Father Paul, but also Joe gives Riley knowledge mm-hmm. at the AA meeting that they have. And Father Paul also pushes... Riley to give Joe knowledge. Like, Riley kind of is like, no. He crosses his arms like, I don't have anything to say to you about drinking because, I mean, obviously I I killed a girl. You might have, you know, paralyzed her and now she's better, but I killed somebody and no amount of miracle is going to bring her back. Probably. I mean, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Probably, maybe. Kind of, sort of. But she's been dead for at least four years, so even if she did come back, (laughs) would that be a zombie situation? Possibly. Yeah. So he is saying, my sin is worse than yours, so I can't speak to your drinking because what I did is so much worse. And Father Paul's like, that's bullshit. Yeah. He says bullshit, like, <laughs> five times. Well, yeah, that. so not to digress from that scene specifically, but we see throughout this episode, and as we talk about the end, I have a theory about that. We see kind of after Lisa's miracle, Father Paul getting increasingly kind of manic mm-hmm. throughout the episode, especially when he's in these moments of what I would call almost religious fervor. Mm-hmm either giving homilies at mass now that there there's a packed church because a miracle happened here or in this moment of potential revelation where mm-hmm. you you can 
you can see, I don't think this is reading too much into it, when Joe shows up at the AA meeting, bringing it from one to two, there's obviously this opportunity for, you know, God to sort of, as we hear in, in his confession that kind of frames the whole thing, like, he's really increasingly, and we'll find out why, fascinated by this kind of idea of, like, divine providence mm -hmm. or like you know ah uh, this moment happened because god was providing an opportunity to bring grace upon this person or these people and you can tell he's kind of sensing that in that moment with joe and so when he pushes riley to talk it becomes very manic almost bordering on sinister mm -hmm. there for a minute yeah and imagine the amount of pressure you would have as somebody who's just performed, I'm using air quotes, performed yeah. a miracle. Imagine the amount of pressure, like those times when he starts getting wound up. And the first time that he passes out in front of the entire congregation, he has wound himself up into this fervor, exactly like what you said. He's wound himself up to the point where he is... It, it is almost sinister. It's like he's angry. Mm -hmm. And he, it, you can see it in the faces of the people in the congregation. They're kind of like, hang on, what? <laughs> like, this isn't the Father Paul that we had just a few weeks ago. This is a new, like, amplified Father Paul. We're, like, at a different level now. And do you think it maybe is partially pressure? Like, the pressure to continue? I have a whole okay. thing about this. Okay. Okay. So... <sighs> And this is going to get really Bible-y for okay. a minute, but I'm actually going to use Jesus Christ Superstar to explain it because <laughs> I can explain it better using that. So this part of the series is taking place during Lent, and I think that's very, very significant mm -hmm. um, because the sort of Lenten story is Jesus's last days before the crucifixion. Mm -hmm. And that is when we see many of the most kind of most famous miracles happen. Right. Per the Bible. So one of the things that is sort of like debatable, depending on like what flavor of Christianity you you ascribe to and like whether you are reading, like what your reading of the Bible is, because, you know, I'm going to state the obvious here. You can read the Bible as literature and mythology. You can read the Bible as faith and spirituality. You can read the Bible as a scholar. There are so many ways to read it. Mm -hmm. There's a really interesting thing that Jesus Christ Superstar examines um, that I kind of love, which is the idea that the pressure on Jesus mm -hmm. to perform miracles, that all of a sudden there's this really great song that anybody who knows the show will kind of recognize where it's kind of the scene where in the play or the movie, all of these people who have different ailments start kind of crawling out of all the different parts of the stage. And they're saying like, let's see if I can quote it, like, see my eyes, I can hardly see, see me stand, I can hardly walk. I believe you can make me well. And the chorus is something like, won't you touch me? Can you heal me, Christ? Will you kiss me? Will you heal me, Christ? And the culmination of that scene is Jesus getting very angry mm -hmm. and being like, heal yourselves and having this moment of anger because of the pressure. Mm -hmm. And we see that a couple of different times in the show. And I kind of love that because it like very much humanizes this mythic character, you know, this person that's 
you know, like, he's Jesus. But, like, he was also a person. And that's Mm -hmm. a lot of pressure for a person. And I feel like that's what they were getting at with Father Paul, is this very human, like, yeah, you may be a performer of miracles, but you're also, like, a person. And now you have all of these other people placing their burdens upon you. Yeah. And you're even, like, the best-hearted person is going to be really pressured to perform and to perform well mm-hmm. on their behalf. Yeah. So um, slight digression there, but I really like, I keyed into that um, in the writing and I really, really like that. Yeah. It's almost like a desperation where mm-hmm. he's like desperately yeah. grasping for that wisdom to be able to funnel it through himself and, like, don't get me wrong, Hamish Linklater's Father Paul, very moving. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. he captures an audience, like, for sure. I have only been to, like, two Catholic masses in my entire life, and some of them have been tied to weddings. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Those are the longest ones. Yeah. I'm sorry, because there's all the extra stuff. Yeah. But, yeah, Father Paul definitely... I mean, at least in the parts where he can kind of ad lib. <laughs> yeah, there aren't many. <laughs> yeah, because there's, I mean, there's definitely a very structured, like, way that things go. There's a script. Yes. yes literally. <laughs> literally a script. script. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about the scene inside the school where the parents are there. The sheriff finds a Bible in his son's backpack. And he and his son, Ali, are Muslim. They are not Christians. They're not Catholics. So it kind of alarms him because he knows what's happened in the island recently. And he also knows that one of the two teachers at the very tiny school is Bev Keen. And she's <laughs> a crazy bitch. <laughs> like, she's yep. the worst. Um, she's like the most Karenest Karen that could ever Karen. Oh, she is Karen prototype. Thank God they don't have a Starbucks. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but... He finds the Bible in Ollie's school bag and becomes concerned. So they have a meeting, and it's with a lot of the parents. And you've got Aaron, who's the only other teacher, Bev Keen, and all the parents, including the sheriff and also the mayor, uh, Lisa's parents. I forget their names, but Lisa's parents. So what did you think about the way that Bev Keen is able to spin a message? Oh, my God. Well, I think I said as we were watching it, like, Bev Keen is white lady tears epitomized, yeah. which is, like, the habit of white women. And I say this as we are two white women sitting here. The habit of white women to take anything, especially any sort of criticism, even remotely in their direction, and to spin it and make it all about themselves and the hurt that they feel at the criticism, not the thing that's actually being discussed. Right. Like, Bev Keen, like, masterclass in that. Icky masterclass, <laughs> but, like, total masterclass in, like, just, like, total... She made everything about herself and, like, everything the sheriff was saying... She was taking, she was automatically saying, well, I would never do that. And it's like, he wasn't saying that. And Aaron says that several times. Like, that's not what he was saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, Aaron being like the proxy to the entire frustrated audience <laughs> yes. at that point. Yeah. yeah. It's just, wow. Wow. That, like, yeah, Bev Keen is a terrible, terrible character. Like, it's very easy to hate her. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand... 
that actress's ability to spin a subject in her favor and like in the most triacally like sugar sweet oh, yeah. way of like Oh, well, if the children want to explore religion, and I share a couple of scripture, you know, passages from the Bible, then who would deny a child the wisdom that is in the Bible? Like, <laughs> I'm side-eyeing so hard right now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the, the kind of great thing about the placement of that scene is that Throughout these episodes, we get these moments of Bev being very caring and being um, a, a person who obviously, like, in, in light of these miracles, like, you do get the sense, like, yeah, she she does believe and she does care about her community and she care, her faith means a lot to her. And it's like there are these moments where you almost get lulled into this this sense of like, oh, she's not so bad. Oh, wait, she's terrible. Oh, she she's is. so terrible. Like that scene just reinforced like exactly how terrible she is. And what was she doing with the poison again? I was going to bring that up. Yeah, because I thought I knew. And then the end shot that theory because I, ha I have a whole different. I thought for a hot minute they were like poisoning the wine. Mm -hmm. The communion wine. Like, mm -hmm. I was like, oh, God, this is going to be a whole, like, Jonestown thing. But I don't think she was doing that. I think the wine is something else mm -hmm. that, we'll, yeah. <laughs> that we can get to here in a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, but what is she doing with that poison? That makes me very nervous. So I wanted to bring that up to you. During this entire episode, and pre previously we have not seen this, Father Paul becomes sick multiple times during this episode. So initially I thought the first time he's weak. Because uh -huh. after he, we see like immediate, the immediate aftermath after he performs a miracle with Lisa, he runs back to his house right. and coughs up blood in the right. sink. So that happens. Then he passes out during mass Everybody's really worried, but uh, Dr. Grunning says, everything's fine. No big deal. He'll be fine. You're dehydrated. Your um, heart rate is up. You've got a bit of a fever, but it doesn't seem like anything bad. Just make sure you're get drinking water. Well, then kind of at the climax of this episode, Father Paul staggers into his house and then has a seizure, coughs up blood, his eyeballs turn red, and he dies Right. Amongst multiple people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Bev Keen, Lisa's parents, and Serge, who's like a handyman around town. Mm -hmm. um, kind of a minor character. So there are four people there to witness that he died. The mayor is there. He checks his pulse. Everybody's screaming. It is an absolutely raw moment. Yeah. Like, I've never seen anybody die like that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and they don't pull any punches. No, it's like, it intense. Yeah. But it's very similar to the way that Joe's dog died. Oh. I don't know if that's... because That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So very similar. But at the same token, Bev Keen is watching people, like watching miracles happen. Why would she poison Father Paul? Right, 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 right. Although... She did see the thing in his house. Right. right. But we don't know if he revealed 
himself to her at that moment. Because there's a bit of plausible deniability there. Although we know because we're clued in, but... Mm-hmm. 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 Oh, that's very, very interesting. Okay. Like, was she trying to force his hand to, like, prove what's happening is actually what's happening? And that's why everybody's there. Like, how exactly did that work? But... I don't know. I can't remember. This is a thread of the show that I actually don't remember. So I'm interested to see how it pans out again. Okay. So one thing real quick before we jump to the end that I wanted to talk about. Light and shadow in this episode is very important. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize it so much the first time I was watching it. I was just kind of like letting everything sink in. But now watching this episode a second time... Watch the things that are out of focus but are in the center of your shots. Mm -hmm. Those are important. Also, watch who is bathed in light and who is in shadow Mm -hmm. in the episode because it's very important and it's kind of, it's a little bit foreshadowing, but also that whole wisdom thing. I really think that there is something there, like very deliberate, like, who is giving wisdom, who is receiving the wisdom, who is perceived to be good, who is perceived to be bad in the town. So anyways, just kind of a blanket statement. Pay close attention to that in this episode. But let's fast forward (laughs) to the end of this episode. Oh, man. So I know that you said that you had a lot of theories about what was happening. How many of those were accurate? Did you think that this is what was going to happen? Well, not exactly in the way that I thought it was, but I did wonder from the very beginning if for some reason that I was unsure of if Father Paul was Father Pruitt Mm -hmm. somehow. So, yeah, I was right about that. Um. (laughs) (laughs) So, side note, Father and Monsignor, are they the same? Uh, kind of, kind of, kind of. So a father is any priest, a monsignor is a kind of a title of honor for a priest. Okay. It's it's sort of like a, it's not the same as a pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, a pastor can be a monsignor, a monsignor can also be just an honored priest in Catholicism. Okay. okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure. I, I think it's just a way to further separate the two of them because Paul and Pruitt both start with P. So Yes. Okay. So to fast forward, we get through the entirety of the episode. We're now kind of back in Father Paul's confession, which I also want to know who he's confessing to because all this stuff, like for me as a priest, I'd be like, whoa. Wait, hang on, what? Yeah, so in every there are oh, like wait. Oh, wait, sorry. He's not confessing to anybody. That's, it's about the, it's a flashback to the first episode where he goes into the confession booth and there's nobody else in there. Yeah. So he's not confessing to anybody. He's confessing to himself. Yeah, he's he's confessing to to God, (laughs) in air quotes. To Um, the empty Yeah, to the empty booth. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. no, but that's, it's funny about that. Um, That's like kind of a, a trope in a lot of like, exorcism or like demon movies like Mm -hmm. movies that use catholicism as part of the like the scariness of it Mm -hmm. is to have somebody go into a confession booth and think that they're talking on their own and then something replies to them oh yeah you know where we spent we would spend if this were like really following that trope we would spend the whole episode of him 
confessing and then finally something would reply in a very sinister dark voice or something (laughs) well it doesn't have to because we find out that it doesn't need to because there's something else dark and sinister (laughs) yeah so uh father paul tells the story of monsignor pruitt going to the holy land getting lost and then getting stuck in this sandstorm and in the sandstorm uh the mouth of a cave slash ancient church is revealed to him and he in his dementia slash alzheimer's addled days wanders into this cave and lights a match and he sees eyes looking at him from in the darkness creepy set of eyes yes they're like cat eyes like reflective yeah which we saw one other time yes at the end of the first episode yes so we find out that In this really beautiful way, it kind of makes you, like, I love the way that Father Paul can put a spin on things, just like Bev Keen, Mm -hmm. only you can tell that he really, truly buys it. Oh, yeah. Monsignor Pruitt was attacked by a vampire, kind of like a Nosferatu-style vampire, but with wings. I don't think Nosferatu had wings. No, he didn't. So, like, imagine... When Dracula in Bram Stoker's Dracula was, like, like half bat. (laughs) You know, where he had, like, wings Mm -hmm. and, like... But his face isn't quite the same. Like, a combination of the two. Hairless, bald, big wings, reflecty, glowy eyes. But he thinks that it is an angel. Mm -hmm. That he has encountered an angel in the Holy Land who gives him the blood of Christ mm-hmm. to uh, who drains him of his fear and doubt and um, his dementia and makes all clear to him. And then in stigmata from the wrist, which is a very classic vampire thing. Like, I mean, typically vampire is they drink your blood, you drink their blood, you go through a, you know, transformation, you become the vampire, which I think is, very on purpose, supposed to be a, like, parallel to the blood of Christ. Like, becoming oh, yeah, immortal yeah. through the blood of Christ. But in this particular instance, Father Paul sees it as the angel drew from him all of his doubt and his sin and his um, reticence. And through stigmata, returned to him life and youth and clarity and then follows him back to tiny little Crockett Island. I love that he follows him. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. that is... I want to know more about that. I want to know more about why this creature chose to spare him. Mm-hmm. Because it was obvious from the scene, at least from the flashback, like, the intent was not to transform father Pruitt Mm -hmm. like the intent was to feed Mm -hmm. um like oh cool food walked right into into (laughs) my cave here (laughs) awesome who knows how long it's been yeah since he's been able to feed or since they've been able to feed I'm saying he because it's kind of like a masculine form but they I guess yeah and so there is this moment where this being chooses to open their wrist and give their blood to father Pruitt And like, why? You know, what was that about? And then what is then the choice to say, 
And we don't know, obviously, if this being can speak mm-hmm. either through human speech or through some kind of weird blood connection or telepathy or whatever. You know, we don't know how they communicate mm-hmm. or if they I mean, obviously, they have to communicate somehow because this vampire demon angel whatever has chosen to follow Father Pruitt slash Father Paul all the way <laughs> to Crockett Island. Which is tiny. Which is tiny and far. Mm-hmm. What about Father Pruitt's bl- or Father Paul's blood Yeah, compelled this being immortal, mythical, you know? Mm-hmm. Is it the connection of Father Paul's blood that tells it that Father Paul believes it to be an angel. It's like, that's cool. Yeah. I'm down with being thought to be an angel. Let's go. Yeah. Um, or is it something else? Well, yeah. And and then you look at, if you want to get really into, like, the sort of lore of it all, you know, Lucifer is a fallen angel. Mm-hmm. Demons are fallen angels. Yeah. You know, from the biblical sense. Mm-hmm. So to be addressed as an angel might be a sort of knowing, you know, mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, you know me. I am an angel. Mm-hmm. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. I have never, ever, ever thought about, I mean, I know that pa- there's are parallels between vampires becoming immortal and the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's deliberate. Like, there's parallels in that deliberately, especially in literature. Like, if we're talking Anne Rice, there's very clear. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, Louis becomes a vampire in his brother's, like, tiny church thing. I forget what it's called. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, like, it's very deliberate. In this particular case, though, I've never seen, heard, read a situation where they think that it is an actual angel who has given them immortality. Mm -hmm. Like... It just blew my mind. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting take on it. Yeah. And it also kind of gives more strength to what Father Paul is experiencing in terms of frustration Mm -hmm. because he has been given this terrible and wondrous knowledge of the fact that there is something immortal living among them and that it has performed miracle on him and father paul's like you guys don't understand it's not just making lisa walk it's transforming everyone and everything all at once and you are looking at this as oh like she can walk again but you don't see the possibilities of what's happening you need to open your eyes and like be ready to receive this knowledge and people are like okay like (laughs) This is a lot. Yeah, like, Lisa doesn't have to use a wheelchair. That's really cool, and we're all super happy for her, but please stop yelling. (laughs) (laughs) But also, so, like, going back to the pressure thing, again, and not knowing what the um, arrangement is, shall we say, between Father Paul and uh, his winged companion, (laughs) what is the pressure there? Or what is the cost Mm -hmm. of these miracles? I mean, obviously, we're seeing a toll being placed on his body, which I assume is in part because, you know, he's been resurrected and I assume he's a vampire and probably needs to feed and probably hasn't. But 
what is this creature asking for in return? Mm -hmm. Because all the cats have been eaten. Yeah, there's no more cats. There's no more cats to eat. So what, in addition to making sure that Father Paul has what he needs to sustain himself, he's also responsible for this creature who... Uh, I assume needs to eat, Mm -hmm. you know, needs a regular meal. But like, what else does this creature want? Mm -hmm. And now we also know what's lurking outside and peeping into people's windows. (laughs) Oh, that's so scary. Yeah. Here's a face. Yeah. Like Dr. Sarah, she, her mom was freaking out during the storm. Riley saw it during the storm, like walking out on the beach, which that was pretty reckless. Like, yeah, there's a storm happening. Maybe he just assume, maybe Father Paul just assumed everybody's got their stuff boarded up. So he's like, go on, have fun, <laughs> eat all the cats, who cares? Have at it. Well, also, though, he was supposed to go to that other part of the island. Because remember, Riley says that all the stuff washes up yeah. on the shore by his house. So he's supposed to go to the other part of the island. What you doing out there? Everybody can see you. There's lightning. <laughs> Be a little bit more discreet. Because he's wearing... The coat and the hat. And that's probably because, like, people would be like, uh, that dude's got wings. Yeah. <laughs> What's happening yeah. out there? But anyways, now we know who is peeping into Ollie's window and who scared Sarah's mom. And yeah. So now for uh, episode four. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com, Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram, and on Twitter at Final Girls Pod. Our theme music is by House Ghost and available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And tell your friends about us. I'm Julia. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary.